Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. The January 2022 Roundup is brought to you by Fun Again Games. And hello. Happy New Year. Of course, uh, we're way past that at this point, but still... In case I didn't catch you at the beginning of January, at the end of January, I, I think that we, we're still within the statute of limitations for wishing Happy New Year's. Hope everything's going okay for you folks. Going pretty well for me and Jen. Certainly the month of January was a very busy month. We played so many games. So very, very many games this month. Um, and I'm going to be uh, counting them down for you right now, going from my least favorite to my most favorite, as I do at the beginning of every month. And hopefully uh, you might find something of interest to you. And uh, yeah, that's really, that's the preamble. I don't know if I have much more of an intro. So uh, let me, first of all, throw over to uh, my number one contributor to the channel, Shay. Shay. Uh, tell us, buddy, what did you play? Hey, folks. So I played three games this month. It was a nice, easy-going month for me. So I'll start with my number three game, Imperial Steam. This is one of those games that where you're building up train networks, you're building up factories, sending resources across the board, fulfilling contracts. It's one of those classic board gamey board games. And I think it will appeal to classic board gamey board gamers. Um... It wasn't for me, though, and that's because this is one of those games that makes you operate under razor-thin margins. You know, if you make a bad move, you might be done, uh, and you won't realize it right away, but you might be done. However, I will say there were some really cool mechanisms, things that I liked a lot, even though I didn't quite get along with the game as a whole. Um, one, the, the big thing was this, uh, you got this personal stock management system. Now, some of these games, you, you have public companies that you're all investing in, but this wasn't that. You've got your own private company, and you start with a low share price and one potential investor. But as you play through the game, you can increase the share prices and you can attract investors. And you're gonna to need to attract investors because if you've increased the share price, that attracting new investors, the ones you have aren't willing to pay for the higher price. So you need to get more investors so that they will pay. But here's the thing, if you ever sell shares, you can get a lot of money that way, and at the end of the game, money is points, so you want it, but you have to uh, pay out dividends at the end. <laughs> dividends is kind of a nice way of saying they hold your company hostage. Uh, what, what happens is for every share you sell, you might get a big payday, but you'll also lose 10% of your total income at the very end. It's a big deal, but it, it requires, it gives you some, this like mental calculus that you have to figure out to, to say like, is it worth it? Is it worth it for me to do this? Not only for the overall score of it, but to get me what I want to do right now. It, it's an aspect of the game that I find, found really interesting. Um, so if that sounds appealing to you and you like those heavy, like train management games, check out uh, Imperial Steam. But uh, that is that. So my number two game was Seas of Havoc. And this was a Kickstarter preview. And if it hasn't gone up uh, yet, it I believe will go up February 1st, uh, the video for that. So this is a deck building worker placement uh, positional skirmish combat game. And when I heard that, I was like, okay, that sounds really interesting. I need to try it. And it's cool. It, uh, I mean, I love deck builders. So I, I wanted to check that out. And I love deck builders like with a purpose, you know, 
deck builders that do something. I like pure deck builders too, but I like it when deck builders do something. So really wanted to check this out and it is pretty cool. It's got this pirate theme. Pirate's not my favorite theme, but I, I dug the, the positional combat of it. It was a little wonky when it came to uh, moving your ships around because you've got this grid board, but it wraps around because these are weird seas. It's seas of havoc. It's too much havoc. It, it, you just get lost. And so you'll, you'll wrap around the board if you get to the edge. Uh, and that makes positioning kind of complex. And on top of that, all of the cards that you're buying for your, you know, in the deck building part of it, they are all movement and and combat cards. So you'll you'll get a card and it'll be like you move forward one space and then left uh, one, or maybe you just you fire uh, at a range three or something like that. And so the cards that you get, none of them are groundbreaking, but they're all pretty good and you know they're better than the cards that you start with. Um, but that part of it was the only thing that like I wasn't 100% on because I love deck builders with you know big bad cards that you get and you feel really good when you get them. Um, but what you do feel good is when you can pull off a clever maneuver because with other deck builders, if you just get the good cards, you might do well. In this game, you have to get the good cards and you have to play well. You have to position yourself right. You have to manage the, the worker placement part well. So there's a lot to keep track of. I also say it has some really good uh, asymmetry. The player, the uh, like little player powers that you have are different um, between players. And there's also, you have different ships, which changes your starting deck. And that's a really cool thing for a deck builder, in my opinion. Um, but if you want asymmetry or if, if you want uh, variation between games, look no further than my number one, Sky Tear Horde. This is a solo or two-player cooperative game. You are fighting against hordes of enemies that are coming at you. You've got to defend different lanes so that you can defend your castle. Um, but what the really big thing about this for me was how much variety there was in every time you played. And I played with a limited prototype version. So I only got one enemy and I had three different allies that I could play with. But every time I played felt completely different. One, the ally decks feel really different. I'm sure when I have different um, like enemy hordes, they're gonna play very differently as well. I gotta see a little bit of uh, options for the other ways that you can play, and they seemed really cool. But on top of that, the cards that become available are always gonna be different. One, because even though they're you know sending big scary monsters at you, the real threat is the minions that are going to just pillage you every turn and just skim cards off the top of your deck. Cards that you'll never get back. And also you won't know what you lost. So the cards that you end up being able to play with, even if you've played that ally faction before, you won't necessarily know what you're gonna get, what you're working with. That I think is really cool. And the uh, enemies do a similar thing. Every turn they kind of burn a card and it will boost the effects of something else that they have on the board. So it's they're still getting use out of it, but they might it might be you know one of the most powerful cards in their deck and just don't have to deal with it. Or it might be boosting the most powerful card uh, in their deck that's already on the board. So there's all kinds of different stuff that uh, that happens with it. As far as gameplay goes, it's it's fun, it's quick and light, but there is definitely some strategy to it. Uh, and it reminds me uh, in feel and in theme of like Hearthstone, games like that, but it has that you know co-op uh, PvE kind of combat to it. Although I've heard that there are potentials for uh, PVP rules as well, and maybe it's a stretch goal or something like that, and that sounds exciting as well. So that was my number one Sky Tear Horde. Oh, I should also mention that was a uh, paid preview as well. Um, and those are my uh, top three games for the month. So I will pass it back to you, Rado. Bye, folks. 
I gotta say, before I go on to my list, a huge, huge thank you to Shay, because I was originally going to be trying to do a run-through this month of Imperial Steam myself. My wife and I, we played it in December, and our brains literally just melted out of our ear holes. It was so big, it was so robust, really brilliantly designed, but oh my gosh, so incredibly punishing that I, uh, I called up Shay, or I wrote Shay, Hey! How would you feel about doing this in January? It's a train game. Everybody likes train games. And he said, sure, no problem, Rado. And then I cackled gleefully to myself because, oh my gosh, that is a big, big game, but a brilliant one. And thank you, Shay, for stepping up when I was not ready for prime time on that. But uh, that's Shay. We've got a little bit more to talk about because specifically... Um, Ruel Gaviola, who is my co-host on the weekly R&R show, actually did a run-through of a game that's on Kickstarter right now as well. It was a paid preview for Skate Summer, and he did a great job, I think. Uh, really captured the feel of this very, very sharp push-your-luck game. You know, it's a competitive, basically, Tony Hawk, the video game, the board game, and it so captures the feel of... I'm going to embarrass myself if I refer to Ollie's and Hanging Ten or whatever, whatever all the, the cool moves are these days. Um, because as you try to play more and more cards to do more and more tricks, you come that much closer to busting and face planting and all that. Um, so what you're trying to do is play tricks that balance on the left side or the right side of your board to minimize that chance of you know crashing out and losing all your progress as you just build your skate meter up. Really sharp, very clever. Aruel had a great time playing it, and I was really happy with the results, too. So, we had that. But now, those out of the way, I'm going to talk about a whole bunch of games Jen and I played. It's going to be in countdown form, starting with our least favorite, ending up with a new game of the month. So, let's get to it, starting with my number 23, Star Clicker. And I should say, this is a very clever little game for families, especially for kids. I really do think this game is designed with kids in mind, which is why it comes in so low for us. Really clever design, but just doesn't a good fit for me and Jen. At its heart, the story of Star Clicker is that we are a bunch of kids, literally a bunch of kids, whose parents have gone off to save the cosmos, and now aliens are invading our planet, and we have to protect the planet, and we don't know how to fly these starfighters. So we just jump in and literally start pushing buttons on the console to see what happens. And it's a memory game. Because every time you push a button, you get to flip it over and see, oh, this makes me shoot uh, to the east. Or this lets me move north. Or this lets me duplicate some other button. And so over time, as you push more buttons, you find out what is it you're actually trying to do. And what you're trying to do, or how can you do what you're trying to do, which is fly around and shoot the onslaught, the constant onslaught, of more and more alien ships that are getting closer and closer. But we're also flying around the area around our planet, trying to find these evil satellites that are jamming communication we can't stop the aliens. We just have to reestablish communication with our parents so they can come back and save us. So we've got to find these cloaked satellites while also still fighting off the bad guys. And the tricky thing is, at the end of every round, events happen. And one of the most common ones is it'll say, hey, you know, um, the, the three buttons on the left side of your console, it's too bad you learned what two of them are because now you have to shuffle them up. I'm like, ah, now i got to learn what the buttons do again. Really clever. Um, the, the game has charm for miles, a great presentation. It's physically fun to push these buttons because of the way they flip on the console. Um, really nicely done, but a very, very lightweight game. Um, you know, I, I could definitely see playing this with kids or you know, parents having a good time, um, you know, family level. But for hardcore gamer geeks like me and Jen, love the idea. Of, um, and you know, the implementation is sharp, but it's just a little too lightweight. We needed some fancier moves we could pull off that we're trying to learn, other than. Just 
just, you know, zipping around and shooting aliens. And so it comes in at number 23, Star Clicker. Then we go on to number 22, Zorro, the dice game. And this is basically Yahtzee with a Zorro theme. And I don't say that in a bad way at all. It does it very, very nicely. you got all these really cool custom dice. At the beginning of your turn, you pick one of several missions that are on the board. And they say, okay, well, you've got to, you know... Uh, you know, stop the bank robbery or, or rescue the kidnap victim or whatever it might be. And it shows, oh, you've got to roll these particular dice. You take your dice, you roll, you set some aside, you re-roll, you set some aside, you re-roll. Hopefully, you got what you wanted, in which case you get to complete the mission and you get new equipment. Because we're not Zoro, We're competing to become the next Zoro because Zoro is retiring. And so over the course of the game, you get all kinds of upgrades that give you more dice, let you manipulate the dice, all kinds of fun stuff. The coolest thing about this game, by far, which I think would make it a lot more interesting at a higher player count is when I'm about to start a mission, I can see with my dice, I don't think I have a very good shot of it. Other players around the table can say, hey, I'll help. And if I say, yeah, sure, then they will come on and I get extra dice and re-rolls and other stuff with them helping me. And it ups my chances of completing the mission and getting new equipment. And then the nice thing is, they get something nice too. Not as nice as what I got, but um, we definitely found this to be the most engaging element of the game. That even though we're competing, racing to become the next Zoro, we often were in a situation where we wanted to help each other. And I could see this being, if if there were three other players around the table and everybody's, okay, I'll I'll take your help, but not your help, because you're clearly winning. So if you get a little bonus by helping me, then we're both kind of catching up with you. I think that's going to be a lot more engaging. As a two-player, it was nice, but it didn't have that much of an impact. And so I really think Zoro the Dice Game is going to be best at higher player counts. But if you like Yahtzee and you're looking for a nice thematic, again, family weight game, um, you might want to check it out because it's very, very sharp. Number 22, Zoro the Dice Game. Then we go on to number 21, Happy City, which is a very sweet, charming little, you could call it my first city building game. Because you guessed it, folks, this is another game that is very, very lightweight, great for families, great for new novice players. On your turn, you're going to draw three new building cards from the cheap, medium, or expensive buildings. You're going to take one of those buildings, pay for it, because you're earning money throughout the course of the game, add it to your own little suburb, and then you are going to get income from all all the buildings you've got. And it sounds really simple because it is. Now, you want to grab certain types of buildings because they give you more income, or because they um, increase the happiness of your population, or they give you more population. At the end of the game, you're going to multiply all the cards that give you population times all the cards that give you morale boost, and that's going to be your final score. So, I mean, the secret's in the name. This is all about building the happiest city you can. And again, it's super sweet and charming. There are There's a little bit more depth to it because there are some cards that are out that require you build build certain combinations of things. And everybody's racing towards that. So everybody can see that, oh, well, if I get a few more of these and... Uh, and you can look on the backs of the cards. There are three decks you can draw from, and you can see what the likelihood of card X, Y, or Z is going to be. So you can take informed guesses, and um, as you get more and more powerful, as you get more and more income, you want to go for the heavier, uh, more expensive buildings because they're going to bring more population. They're going to help people more. So it has a nice little arc. It's really sweet. Jen and I, we were able to finish a game in this in under 15 minutes. And uh, you know, and there were some nice little uh, decisions to be made along the way. But again... Oh my gosh, this would be perfect to play with my niece and nephew if they were ever visiting. A wonderful gateway game. If you're a hardcore gamer geek, it's probably too lightweight for you, uh, like it was for me and Jen. But we did, I can honestly say, did enjoy our time in Happy City. Number 21.
Then we go on to number 20, Pocket Detective. And this one really kind of surprised me quite a bit. This game is just a deck of cards. And what you're going to do is, over the space of an hour or so, you are going to systematically search through this card to try to solve a murder. Because you are, we are a group of detectives trying to figure out, you know, uh, solve a crime, as you might imagine. And the deck gets divided into different sub-decks that represent different locations that you can go when you're investigating. You can say, hey, I'm, you know, the Pocket Detective we played... A professor was murdered, and um, his wife was a suspect, and I think his teacher assistant was a suspect. And you could go hang out at his office, you could go to the main classroom, you could go to his house. Each one of these locations represents a different deck. And when you decide to go there, it takes a certain amount of time. All these cards have little time tokens on them. It says, oh, if you want to go and interview the wife, because, well, where was she? Because, I mean, you know, one of the first things we got in this mission, it was like the second or third card we drew, was a call log, because we checked out the victim's cell phone. And we're like, well, well, why did he make all these calls? Why was he calling this person so much? Who was the last person he talked to before he died? So that gives you some interesting leads that feels really thematic. And we did feel like detectives. And you know, one of the first thing that happens, again, it's not a big spoiler, is the uh, autopsy, uh, you know, the, the office says, hey, it's going to take us seven hours. So you know you don't get any information about the autopsy until seven hours have passed. And hours pass whenever you flip over one of these cards and interview people or search for clues or whatever it is. So... I was really surprised. I expected this was going to be like a really simplistic little game. But there are really nice mechanisms layered throughout. The passage of time and, um, you, know, I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff to keep note of. I mean, this was a, a bit more... I mean, I'm not saying this is as heavy as a Sherlock Holmes consulting detective, but it was a lot more than I expected. It was an interesting case to try to solve. But the passage of time as something that we had to be aware of and then being able to visit and revisit areas, it was... Beautifully done. So if you like working on a cooperative puzzle, trying to, you know, if you want to be Columbo or or um, NCI investigator or whatnot, this game delivers on that fantasy really, really nicely. The only reason it comes in at number 20 for us is at the end of the day, neither my wife nor I are that into solving mysteries. We used to be at one point, but we've kind of it's 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 really not a thing that engages us quite so much anymore. So while I believe this was a beautiful implementation. I mean, Portal Games has a bigger game called Just Detective that is big and long and takes, you know, tens of hours to complete. This crams all that gameplay into a tiny, tight, little fun, fun package. It's just beautifully designed. So if you like solving crimes and um, you've got an hour to spend, it's not going to cost you much to check out my number 20, Pocket Detective. Then we go on to number 19, Hike! Uh, which was a paid preview for a game that's on Kickstarter. I think the Kickstarter might be over right now. I'm not quite sure. But this is a game of husky sled dog racing. And I gotta say, both my wife and I were very pleased by it. The game has two halves. The first half of the game, you are drafting to get the best... Um, team of dogs you can. Because you have to bear in mind, different dogs have different strengths for going over different terrain. Dogs also have personalities, and you have to try to get like... or You have to arrange them on you know, the, the, the sled train to ensure that the dogs will play well with each other. And then on top of that, you can be drafting for dogs. You can also be drafting for equipment that will help you get through tough patches. You can also be drafting for what are my favorite element of the game. It's why I want to check it out care cards. Because the fundamental um, conceit, 
theme of this game is the 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 way you win this race is by developing a bond with your dogs, taking care of your dogs, listening to your dogs, uh, developing um, trust with your dogs. Because those care cards are the most important thing in the game. They are an incredibly valuable resource. Because the second half of the game is this uh, very pretty straightforward race, where over the course of the drafting, you discovered more and more and more of what the weather was going to be like, what the uh, track conditions were going to be like, and you're drafting with that in mind. Once the race starts, you are leveraging the strengths of all your different dogs every day to try to get as far as you can. And then at the end of the day, your dogs are tuckered out from a day of racing, they rest overnight, and then the race continues on the next day. And um, you just get closer and closer to the finish line. The thing is, if you spend care cards, that allows you to get a little bit more. The dogs are like, oh, I trust you! I'm going to go even harder! And so you can get like a little bit of extra far um, from day to day, so that um, when you start the second day, I'm in a position where, oh, this dog is going to be perfect for this. If I couldn't have gone those two extra steps, I was not going to have a good start on the second day. Now, the second half of the game is really almost like just an extended scoring period. Because the real meat of the game is the first half, when you're drafting and trying to get the perfect collection of dogs. But the second half is very satisfying, very fun and fast, and really thematic. Another thing that I really appreciate about Hike is, in the real world, in our world, there are a lot of really bad abuses um, in you know the professional dog sled racing industry, um, sport. And, you know, I mean, the sport is definitely taking steps to try to address that, but there are there are bad actors out there. There are bad mushers. Um, the developers know that, and they are actually trying to champion um, causes that try to uh, help the dogs out there. And more than anything else, the game wants to demonstrate the best way you can win is not pushing your dogs too hard. Letting yourself actually slow down so that they can get a second win, so that they can do even better on the following day. So the game has its heart in the right place. It's you know drawing attention to a real-world... Oops, sorry folks, I'm having some technical difficulties recording today. I think I just lost sound for a second. But what I was just saying is, I'm not quite sure when it dropped out, I think the game is a great gateway-style game. I think families will love it. The dogs are awesome-looking. There's there's some interesting decisions to be made, but it's not too heavy. A little bit more lightweight than what Jen and I were looking for, but still, a fun, fun card-drafting game. My number 19, Hike! Okay, then we go on to number 18, Camp Pine Top. And uh, this one really surprised me. If The next time I am going to do a uh, Top 10 Surprises, I think I might put Camp Pine Top on the game. Because at first, I thought this was going to be another really simple, lightweight uh, game. It, uh, it kind of melds the card drafting of Ticket to Ride. Because there's a bunch of cards out there, you're trying to collect the right collection of cards in your hand, not so that you can you know, lay track on a map of somewhere on the world like Ticket to Ride, but instead so you can spend these cards to move around a forest around Camp Pine Top, because we're a bunch of camping kids trying to complete merit badges and all that, and we need to get the right combination of cards. And wild cards are great, but if you take one of those, then you can't take a second one. Again, the card drafting feels very Ticket to Ride-ish, and it's very nicely done. In fact, actually, it's kind of an improvement over Ticket to Ride. I think it does it better. And But then the second half of the game is, as we're getting these cards, we're spending them as a resource to move around, and then we're also spending them when we arrive at certain areas to get those merit badges. And there's a ton of merit badges that give you all kinds of upgrades. So over the course of the game, you're getting stronger and stronger and stronger, and it speeds up and speeds up. And overall, the game is really sharp. My wife loved it. 
She was a huge fan. I liked it. I thought it was nice, especially the game comes with several different modules you can turn on that really elevates the complexity of it, like um, wild animals that wander around, or weather events that will change the layout of the board, or you can play it in a much more family-friendly way, because obviously this is a game that would very much appeal to gateway audiences. So this game really bridges the gap, the gap quite nicely. So uh, both Jen and I, Jen loved it. I liked it. Um, I, 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 for me, I don't know if it was a keeper because still, at, it, at the heart, you spend a lot of this time, like Ticket to Ride, okay, I'm just trying to get all these cards, and then boom, I have a big turn, and then okay, now i got to start collecting the next cards. It, it's got a good rhythm, just not my favorite rhythm, but again, my wife was very, very impressed. So for her, this would probably rate into her top probably her top 10 of the games we played this month. And uh, But this is more my ranking. I liked it. I didn't love it. I think it's great. I think it's got a fantastic audience, great presentation, nice components, really wonderful sense of whimsy and humor. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to recommend with my number 18, Camp Pinetop. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Then we go on to number 17, Floriferous. And Wow. This is a fantastic game. I really like this one a lot. It's another team-up from designer Steve Finn and Pencil First Games. It's probably their second best collaboration to date, the first one being Whatnot Cabinet, which is still so brilliant. But Floriferous is a wonderful game. Actually, it says right on the box, it's about relaxing. It is attempting to be a relaxing game where all we're doing is just going for a stroll through a beautiful garden, taking a look at beautiful, beautiful flowers. Oh my gosh, this game is a knockout. And what we're really doing is a whole bunch of set collection. The core gameplay here is very, very reminiscent of the drafting in King Domino, where if I take a higher card in the next row, that means um, I am going to be able to go first next turn, but chances are it's not going to be as valuable as if I had taken a lower card. And what we're doing is we, we start out the game going from left to right, just grabbing cards, then we refill the board, then we go from right to left. And it feels like you're just wandering through this garden, grabbing cards that represent the flowers you saw, or the, the bugs, or the uh, features of the garden. So, the King Domino drafting is very, very good. But what's really special about this game is the set collection. Because every card, or most cards, have multiple metrics on it, You know where they will... Uh, getting a particular tulip could help you fulfill a personal desire could help you fulfill a bounty. There are public goals, there are private goals, there are display goals, and every single card you take in this game you have to very carefully consider, because it could actually help you in several different ways. But chances are, um, what you really need to be thinking about is, well, okay, I could grab this card right now, and that's good for me, but I can see on the next leg of this journey, the card I absolutely need. My linchpin is there, and I cannot afford to miss that one. So maybe I'll sacrifice and take a card that's not so great for me this round, so I'm in a higher um, spot on turn order to get what I really need on the next round. And that tension is wonderful. My only complaint, the, again, the thing that keeps it from being higher is this is definitely a game that is going to work better at higher player counts because there are simply more cards to draft. And I think that's going to be interesting. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I, I, if I could have gotten a chance to play this as a three or four player game, oh my goodness, 
I think it would be so fantastic. I would love it to bits and bobs all up and down the street. But only getting to play as a two-player game, it works really well, just not as much as I'd like, which is why it came in number 17. And that reminds me, I never do this. I'm going to go back to my number 18, because that reminds me of one more thing I forgot to mention about Camp Pinetop. The other thing that keeps it a little lower for me is we got to play it as a two-player game. One of the coolest features about this game is, as you're wandering around the wilderness, if you move into a space with one of your opponents, you have to literally give them a gift. You have to give them a card from your hand. And you know, so you're always, you're, you're collecting all the cards you need to complete your goals, but sometimes you're like, oh, I'm just going to give them this around so that if I have to run afoul of somebody, and I have to give them a gift. Okay, I'll give you one of these because I don't care about it. That is awesome. That was probably my favorite thing about Can Pine Top, Cap Pine Top. It's not negative interaction, it's positive interaction where, okay, well, either I gotta wait for you to leave so I can move where I want to go, but if you're not gonna leave for a while because you're in the middle of grabbing a bunch of cards yourself, then maybe I'll just go on ahead and move in and here, here's a gift. And it felt good, it felt nice. And so that sounds great. Why does that knock it down for me? Because even though they tighten the board up, Jen and I found as a two-player game, we just weren't giving gifts very often. Especially because one of the merit badges you can get is, oh, um, uh, I don't have to give gifts anymore. And as soon as we both had that, as we both got it fairly quickly, a big part of the game just disappeared. Now, um, that is a real bummer. And you know, if you play at a higher player count, first of all, there's going to be more opportunities to bump into people. And second, there's going to be more people who didn't get that. Honestly, I think that was a real mistake, putting that particular merit badge in Camp Pinetop, because it allows players to turn off the single coolest interactive element of the game. I might almost house rule it and say, you know what? That, um, that one isn't in the game anymore, because it really just robs some of the specialness. So I forgot. That was another reason Campine Top came in at number 12. Or I'm sorry, number 18 of the month. Okay. Now, um, I got myself a little discombobulated there. Let's continue with number 16, Theros. And I gotta say, folks, um, this game could have probably made my top five of the month. It is so good. There's so much I like here. This is a uh, bag-building, dice-worker placement game set on a steampunk alien planet where we are investing in infrastructure, making all kinds of hires to get access to special powers so we can manipulate our dice to do worker placement stuff so that we can mine stuff from this alien planet and um, convert it into victory points. All the while, every round, there are going to be disasters that are befalling us that we know what they're going to be. We have to prepare for that, or we just have to take it on the chin because we're too busy doing other stuff. And of course, all of this is driven by the dice we roll that we pull out of our bag. And different colored dice let you do different stuff. And sometimes the dice will be awesome. Sometimes they'll like say, nope, you got to come up with another plan. And it all works wonderfully. This is such a sharp, sharp game from publisher Spielworks, if I recall correctly. So, there's a lot I like here. I, and there's one... I have a couple of little uh, gripes about it that really are not that big a deal. Like, some of the naming conventions for rounds versus turns are a bit off-putting, but none of that matters. I have one big complaint, and it's so easy to fix. One of the investments you can make, uh, one of the cards you can buy, uh, gives you an ongoing power to let you manipulate the dice, to let you, um, you know, change dice. Right? And I mean, you need that in any kind of dice game like this. The thing is, that power, I forget what they're called, the adjuster or something like that, this card you have to invest in, and it takes you a while to get this card. Um, that card should be in play from the get-go. 
everybody should have access to that power. Because imagine another game, a heavy Euro, like, say, Castles of Burgundy, that has a lot of dice, manip- or, um, dice determining what you can do in a given round. Imagine in Castles of Burgundy that you couldn't get worker tiles until halfway through the game when you've made an investment. And then you can start using workers to manipulate in Burgundy. That's what they did here, and I don't understand why. I forget the name of it. It's like the Adjuster or something like that. If everybody just had that one card active from the beginning of the game, this game would rocket from a from a like a mid to high seven up to a, a, a mid to high eight for me. Absolutely phenomenal. So uh, if you ever check it out, let me suggest that as a house rule. It'll make the game so much better. But as it is with the official rules, Theros is my number sixteen. And then let's talk about number 15, Puzzle Strike 2, which was a paid Kickstarter preview uh, and a game that I really enjoyed quite a bit. And now, in part, that's because I have a big fondness, a huge nostalgia for, uh, you know, classic... Tetris-inspired video games. There have been so many of them over the years. I mean, I'm old enough to have been playing Tetris and Dr. Mario back when they first came out on the NES. But these days, I mean, what? Bejeweled? There's so many of them. And they've been in so many different ways. One of the more popular lines of these types of games was called Puzzle Strike. Or, I'm sorry, uh, Puzzle Fighters. And Puzzle Strike is basically Puzzle Fighters, the board game, and it works so well. Every round, a bunch of super pretty colorful gems are going to come crashing down on you, and you've got to manipulate them in this stack to be able to get big enough groups of them so that they will disappear, your stack will sink down, and what ends up happening is the stuff that you got rid of, first of all, it fills up special power meters, and second of all, all those gems you got rid of get thrown over towards your opponent. And now they've got to deal with that on their turn, and it's like a constant war of attrition that we're just trying to overload each other. Now, all of this is driven by a very solid deck-building system. Uh, The deck-building in this game is very, very good. You start out with some simple stuff, but every round you get to buy more cards and put them into your deck that are based on all all these cute, colorful, um, you know, cartoony fighters. I have seen some people complain they don't really like the aesthetic of the game, but I love it. It so captures that video game feel. It's just absolutely great. Now, there are some very interesting things about this game as well. One of them is the Scepter of Power, which one player is holding. And it's literally represented by a gigantic plastic toy scepter that lights up if you put batteries in it. But anyway, the important thing is whoever holds the Scepter of Power is the target of everybody else's attacks. This is not a game where, oh, I'm going to choose to attack you or you or whatever, when you hold the Scepter of Power, you are super powerful. Your special power meters are automatically filling up all the time, so you can unleash all kinds of big super combo moves. But it means every other player around the table is constantly deluging you. And so at the end of your turns, or at the end of other players' turns, you have the opportunity to say, I relinquish the Scepter of Power! I don't want this anymore! I need to catch a break! And then all of a sudden, now somebody else is the target of all this. And while some people think that the Scepter of Power, as a big, uh, you know, battery-powered light-up toy is a bit overkill. I think it's thematically so perfect because you really... It does feel... It's like... It's incredibly powerful and it's also cursed at the same time. It just being a tiny little piece of cardboard that is a picture of a scepter would not actually capture the essence, the excitement, the drama of this game as it switches hands back and forth. And so... I love the multiplayer interaction in this game. I love the deck building. It's super sharp. This game is so overflowing with amazing combo potential. You know, when you get further into the game, every round, you're, when you get hit, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to hit by 5,000 things. And yet somehow, you draw your hand of cards, they start letting you draw other cards, and cards, um, you know, interact with other cards, they unlock secret powers, and somehow you get through it all. And then everybody else gets hit with all this stuff. 
It is a brilliant, fun, fast game. My only complaint about it is that um, the, the the central feature of it is uh, you know that center of power. In a two-player game, it's a little bit less interesting because there's only two people anyway. At a higher player count, when one person is the target of multiple assailants, that's going to be super duper cool. Plus, if I'm honest, I mean this is a game, especially as a two-player game, where you are spending all your time trying to figure out right how can I destroy you. And my wife and I, as Care Bears, that's not really our thing. But but we enjoyed this so much anyway that coming in at number 15 on this was a really good month full of games is pretty high praise for me. My number 15, Puzzle Strike 2. Okay, then we go on to number 14. 10. Now, this is a game from the design super trio behind Cascadia and um, oh my gosh, so uh, many. I mean, they, they, oh, Molly and Stan, and I can't remember the third person's name. She'll look up before I started. But there is a trio of designers that have been doing a lot of really interesting stuff for AEG and other publishers. And um, you know, have started their own little like design firm, and they're working with lots of people. 10 is a game that came out. It didn't quite get as much attention as their big hit of the year, Cascadia, which is an amazing game. But this is a really sharp push-your-luck auction game, where players are, when it's your active turn, you are drawing more and more cards, trying not to bust, trying not to, you know, uh, you know, the, the total of the cards you've drawn, try not to go over 10, but um, trying to give yourself as many cards as you can. But the problem is, there's two types of cards. There's these number cards that you're using to make straights in front of you to score points at the end of the game, which is all done very nicely. But then there are also these money cards. And those money cards go to your opponents. So the more you draw, I'm, I'm pushing my luck. I'm risking everything, but I'm also potentially giving you better and better stuff too. So there's a lot more going on in this game than a typical um, you know, a Diamat style push your luck game, and both Jen and I were very impressed by it. My wife loved it. I liked it. It's a little too abstract for me. I wish there was some way that you could um, layer some theme, some thematic elements onto it, because it is a pure abstract, just try to get long straights of numbers um, you know, while dealing with a market that you can buy stuff from, pushing your luck, auctions, uh, because you know, once around bidding that is incredibly tense, there's a lot of game packed into basically a tiny deck of cards with my number 14 of the month, 10. And then we go on to number 13, Composition. Now, this game really should be getting a lot more attention than it is. And I wouldn't blame anybody if they look at it and they say, oh, is this just um, from Tim Fowers? Is this another sequel to Paperback? Because this is a card game like paperback or hardback, that is crossed with Scrabble. So it is a word game where you're trying to make better and better words over the course of the game. But it is so different than Tim Powers' other works, paperback. It is really fresh and unique. It is a card drafting game. Everybody at the beginning of the game gets a special character with a special player power. Um, in the picture I've got here, I was literally a anthropomorphized pile of mud. My name was Mud, and I had a special mud power, and every turn, I always have M-U-N-D as a basis for my cards. But every round, in addition to those base cards I've got, I'm going to be drafting from cheap cards, expensive cards. You can earn money in this game and save up to buy the really powerful stuff. And um, I'm going to be trying to make the best card I can to make as much money as possible. Uh, because after a round is over, all those cards I drafted, most of them are going to go away. This is not a deck building game where the words keep coming back. So you're constantly inundated every round with a fresh new collection of letter cards, most of which have really cool, interesting, unique special powers on it. So the, um, the churn on this game is really interesting. It's constantly forcing you to come up with new... It's, it's not like one where, you're, oh, I've got my deck 
deck and I'm going to keep using it in similar ways. This game is constantly surprising you with fresh new combinations. If you can draft the right cards, because everybody can see when really great cards come out and um, everybody's got to figure right... That is an awesome card. Can I actually put a cue in a word, considering um, MUD is my base? And of course, over the time, you will build other base cards you get to carry over from round to round as well. Very impressed by this game. Both Jen and I thought it was fantastic. And I mean, again, I think a lot of people look at it and say, Oh, I've already played Paperback. Do I need to play this? It, it's the same thing. It's making words, but it does it in such a radically new and fresh and interesting, different way that is so satisfying. I, both Jen and I were very, very impressed. And we are generally not ones who like um, Scrabble-esque word-building games. But you know, when they're like composition, they are definitely worth checking out. That's my number 13 of the month. Then we go on to number 12, The Specialist. And now this is a... Uh, what would you call it? I guess it's a card drafting game where you are drafting cards to build the perfect crew to pull off big heists all around the world. Jewelry heists, bank robberies, all kinds of stuff. You know, Ocean's Eleven-y type stuff. And um, before you actually pull off these heists, like I said, every round there's going to be a uh, collection of cards that are out there, and you have a uh, dice in a queue. Those dice you have, you p spend those dice to hire um, different different members to either get new skills like drivers or bruisers who you know get into a fight, or you can um, upgrade. You can train your existing driver, or your existing bruiser, or your existing acrobat or actor to get better and better and better. And in doing that, what you're doing is. Every member of your crew, every one of your specialists, is a little miniature engine. Because every time you upgrade your driver, you get to activate all the cards on that driver. Or you get to activate that one card you just bought several times in a row. And this is so that you can get all the resources you need to have really big, super fantastic, powerful turns. And it just works so well. So great. I'm really, really impressed by it. And then that's only half the game. Because not only do a, a selection of specialist cards come out every round, but you also have a new collection of dice. The first thing you do um, on your turn of the round is you grab one of these dice. They go in your queue. You could use that die you just grabbed to then um, hire or train people, or you can leave that die alone and use one of your other dice. Because the longer you hold on to the dice, the more powerful they get. So you are juggling a lot of things going on in this game. Never mind the fact that you know you, you just want to build all these little engines with your different crews so you get all kinds of special powers, but you need to get the right combination of crews to be able to pull off jobs in Rio de Janeiro, or Las Vegas, or London, or whatever it might be. And so there are every move in this game, there are lots of different considerations to make. Getting the right people, getting the right dice to get the right people. Because your dice, you not only do you use them to uh, to recruit people, you use them to activate your little miniature engines as well. And all this stuff combined makes for a very fun, puzzly, fast-playing game. Uh, There's a combination of really interesting dice drafting and really interesting card drafting and very fun, thematic, flavorful gameplay too. I was really impressed with this one. Uh, really, one of, uh, one, of, one of the most fun games I played. Uh, for my wife, it rated a little bit lower because... When you're looking at the map of the world, all of these different jobs you could pull off, it's a bit overwhelming. And my wife found, for her, it was becoming a little analysis paralysis inducing. And she was like, oh, 
okay, you just finished that job. I can't do that job. Now, based on my um, crew, what can I do now? And, and, and for her, it was a little overwhelming. For me, I didn't really have a hard time with it. I think because I was thinking of it more in thematic terms while she was thinking of it in mechanical terms. So, um, you know, that, that's a bit of a proviso. This would have made my top 10 personally a little bit, but I knocked it down a couple because my wife found it to be a little too... I mean, but that's a good thing, right? If it's really making you stop and think and grind and figure out what's the best move I can make here, to me, that's a sign of a really sharp, fun game. Uh, and that is my number 12, The Specialist. Then we go on to number 11, Mercurial, which is another paid Kickstarter preview. And now, interestingly, this game is not launching on Kickstarter, I think, until March. I covered this one way early because I had to get it back in the mail to send to other folks so it could get more coverage. And um, honestly, when I first checked out this game and uh, was talking to the publisher about whether I wanted to spend time covering it, I wasn't quite sure because I'll be honest, the uh, theme of it is fine, but it's not really my favorite thing. This is a game where we are alchemical masters trying to bend the elements to our will to be able to cast spells to save people. This is basically a spell-building game. And that's fine, it's just not something that I find particularly engaging. If I'm playing high fantasy, I, I guess I, I prefer more of the swords than sorcery personally. I guess I just... Uh, but I was interested in anyway, because it's got a really, really compelling combo layer upon combo layer upon combo layer element to it. Because most of your turns, what you're going to do is, on your turn, you are going to play a card from your hand, and that represents you using one of your assistants to manipulate the dice you have. Because at the first thing you do, you have all these dice, you roll them, and that says, oh, I've got access to some earth elements, and I've got some fire elements. Oh, I've got no water elements. I've got some darkness elements. Right, I've got these dice. I need these dice to be able to cast spells. These dice are wrong. They did not roll the way I wanted them to. So, I can play a card from my hand, and um, use it to manipulate those dice, convert them into things, do all kinds of funky stuff. Um, and on my turn, I'm going to take a card from the board and um, or recover all my spent cards, Concordia style, and then I am going to play a card. And slowly, or not slowly, actually, very quickly, the turns are very fast. Okay, oh, that's a really good card. I'll go on ahead and I'll use that and I'll play it right now because that's going to turn um, the three void cards I got into anything I want. I need more water. And boom, I'm done and then that new card I got is gone. Next turn, I could get another card, manipulate things more. But what we're trying to do is we're building... More, we're getting more and more apprentices, assistants, that will let us manipulate these dice. But there's another type of card on the board that are the actual spell components. And I have to spend my dice to get those. So first of all, I can grab the assistants for free. Or almost for free. There is kind of a uh, small world style. Hey, if you skip this one, you have to put resources on it that makes it more attractive for other people. It's got that kind of drafting going on. But then I use my assistants to manipulate the dice. Finally, my dice are in position. They let me start getting the spell components. But the interesting thing is, first I had to go through all these different combos of using my assistants to combine them in different ways to get the dice what I want. Then I use the dice to get the spells, and we're only halfway through the whole process, because now, eventually, on my turn, instead of taking something and playing something, I could cast a spell based on all the spell cards I've got. And the thing is, each one of these spells, depending on how... These spells all have interesting combo chain stuff as well. And you can combine them in different ways. These chains will double the output of this. This thing will convert the output of one thing into another. So... You had combos of your assistants to combine with combos of your dice so that you could spend those combos to be able to get spells so that you could then combo all those spells together in different clever ways to finally achieve your goal, which is at the top of the board, there's a bunch of monsters to fight and people to save and all kinds of her heroic stuff to do. And that's how you ultimately score points. So this game is 
combo-tastic. Combo upon combo upon combo, and all different kinds. Ca hand management card combos, dice manipulation combos, um, you know, uh, spell tableau building combos. And um, it's, it's, it may sound, it doesn't sound like much, but when you're actually playing it, it is so rich and full, I found myself really projecting myself into the fantasy of, oh yeah, I'm a master alchemist, and I'm making all of these disparate things come together to cast this super spell. And if all that weren't enough, there's one more cool thing about this. When you ultimately cast those spells, the spell cards you have comboed together to make your super spell, they either produce restoration, i.e. they heal, or ruin, i.e. they hurt. So they can heal or hurt, restore or ruin. And um, what you want to do is manipulate the cards so you have a really big hurt ruining, so you can do big bad monsters, or a really good healing. But often, these cards, when you're combining them together, well, this'll do... This spell I cast right now, it'll do 15 Ruination. Huge fireball. But it'll also do 5 healing, and they cancel each other out. So, 15 minus 5 means I'm only going to do 10 Ruination. Ah! This heal, i got to get rid of these things. So, it's another opportunity for you to manipulate all these cards. But the brilliant thing is, the most powerful thing you can do in this game is achieve harmony and balance. Because if I can cast a spell that would produce 8 Ruination and 8 restoration, then the two forces cancel each other out and become twice as powerful. And I get wild card abilities, or wild card resources I could spend. And it's awesome. It is very tricky to pull that off. And it comes off after a string of combo upon combo upon combo to be able to pull off these super harmonious spells, but that's so satisfying when you do it. So, Honestly, like I said, folks, I was not really... I was thought this is going to be an okay, nice little card game, but oh my gosh, it has really interesting, hidden, surprising depths. My number 11 of the month. Watch for it when it goes on Kickstarter. Remember, this was a paid Kickstarter preview. Mercurial. Then we go on to number 10, Detective. And, um, you know, I have talked about how my wife and I have kind of really lost interest. We don't have much enthusiasm or excitement anymore for games that are all about us cooperatively trying to sleuth out a murder mystery or whatever it might be and solve a crime. And, um, you know, th these games are coming out all the time. And Detective really sets itself apart from all the other ones. It is, at its heart, just a deck of big cards that comes in a box. But when you start playing Detective, the first thing you do is you take all these murder scene or the crime scene cards, and you stick them into the edges of your box, and you create a little three-dimensional scene that you are going to investigate. And that, the toy factor of that, is off the chain. But as soon as I was setting up and I showed my wife, she's like, oh, I can't wait to play this, that is so cool! And she just wanted to pick up the little murder scene and look at all the nooks and crannies. And, and if you do, you want to, because there is hidden information. And you want to look at all sides of the scene because it's three-dimensional now. And it can update over time because you can slip new cards um, and override the old cards. So that's why I was interested in Detective. Even though I knew Jen and I weren't going to be that interested in solving a murder, but I thought that was going to be really cool. That's not the coolest thing about this game, though. That's neat. But what's very cool is there's a deck of cards. And basically, each player draws a certain number of cards. Three, I think, by default. And when it's your turn, you have to decide to either play one of these cards into the public area so everybody has access to this clue that's going to help us solve the crime, or you trash it and remove it from the game. 
And then only you know that particular clue, and it's your responsibility to bear in mind whatever that was. Because maybe it was important, but maybe it was a red herring. A lot of these cards are like, this surely has nothing to do with this crime. Okay, this is one of the ones I'm going to trash. Because we need to trash cards, because the more cards that we put in the archive, I think it's got, that we just kind of push out of the game, that um, allows us to play bigger cards. Because every card has a value. Um, if there are three cards in the archive, that means I could play a level one, two, or three card to the public area so everybody knows and we can start putting cards together and solve this murder. And the trick of all this is, folks, you can't tell anybody about what's in your hand. I'm holding on to this five. Oh my gosh, I have to tell everybody about this clue because I think you know something I don't know. And if I could tell you about this, but I can't tell you about this. I have to play it, but it's a five. So we got to, between us, discard five cards before I can play this because I think this is where this is the uh, this is the smoking gun, literally. And um, that's so cool that you have to make informed decisions. Because again, you're, we're all detectives. We're searching around and we're having to make on the spot decisions. Is that important? No, ignore it um, so that we can focus on what we think is important. Thematically, it works. From a gameplay perspective, it's brilliant. Both Jen and I were blown away by this. We came in expecting to love the little 3D scene investigation, but we stayed for the awesome imperfect communication co-op gameplay. So, it's awesome. In spite of the fact that my wife and I are so burned out on solving mysteries and stuff like that, we really like this. With one caveat. The reason it doesn't come in higher on my list this month is... The um, we played Bloody Red Roses. The the uh, the 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 that was the name of the case, if I recall correctly, something like that. Oh my gosh, it was so easy. The solution to the crime was so painfully obvious that we kept thinking, "Wow, it's too obvious. This must be a red herring." And we kept looking for. Nope, it turns out. That's what it was. So it was, and I understand this game is clearly designed to be played with families, and um, you know, and and you'll play with kids who can really feel like, oh, I understand what this is, and and you don't ruin yourself if you throw away an important thing. But yeah, for me and Jen, we loved everything about this game except we wanted a tougher case to crack. And I don't know, maybe there are other games in the Detective series that are a little bit heavier. This again, I would think would be great to play with families, play with kids. And, oh, it's just such a clever system. But I could see this really being the cornerstone of a bigger, richer gameplay. I mean, not even necessarily solving mysteries. This idea of, I've got these cards. Some of them I can put into play to help us cooperatively, but I can only do it at the expense of trashing other cards, and I have to decide by myself. That is so freaking brilliant. I could see this core idea implemented in all kinds of Euro game systems. And right now, you'll find it in my number 10 of the month, Deck Detective. Then we go on to number number nine, Collab, which is kind of short for collaboration. This is another paid Kickstarter preview, a very, very sharp worker placement game. And it's called Collab because we are mad scientists working in our labs collaboratively with our opponents. This is a competitive game where we are trying to gather resources we need to do um, various and sundry, um, you know, mad scientist experiments, you know, uh, you know, creating monsters that will do our bidding and, and you know, making all kinds of cool inventions and stuff like that. And um, so we have a hand of cards that says, here's all the resources we need to do this. And we're trying to get them built, playing them to a grid on our side of the table, because a lot of these cards will say, hey, when you play this card, if it's next to these other types of cards, it'll score you points. Or, hey, play this card and it lets you manipulate other cards. All kinds of things. So, at its heart, we've got this hand of cards. We're trying to harvest the resources we need from our laboratories to be able to play this tile-laying game. And that's all very cool. And I like that part a lot. But what really makes the game cool 
is the way the collaboration works. Because on your turn, you've got a handful of dice, and you've got a handful of minions, and you're going to put a die in a minion and send it to one of the towers of this castle we're all experimenting in. And this is worker placement. You'll do that to uh, get something from that tower that you need to play a card. Once your little minion is out there carrying that little die, that minion is available for everybody. Because on your turn, first you'll place a minion, or recall one if you're out of them. And then you'll take your mad scientist and move them from one lab to another. And wherever you move them, you can then have access to all the minions that are adjacent to that tower, both yours and your opponents. So that's where the collaboration comes in. That you are constantly, oh, you're really using that tower a lot. What do you know? I think I should probably head over to that lab. Even though I didn't care about that lab, it'll be such a powerful move because you've got three minions over there because you were really focusing on that tower. I, I really got to take advantage of it. And that is awesome. The collaboration in this competitive worker placement game is so brilliant. It really elevates this game. My only complaint, the thing that kept this out of my top five of the month is, it is a big game. Game, and it is a long game. And both Jen and I agreed we loved everything about it, but we wish there was kind of an express so we could like shave 20 minutes off the playtime. And we're in luck. Because after I put my video up, uh, the publisher posted, we'd already been thinking about having an express version of the game that just gets it started quicker and you know makes it a, more like an hour instead of a, you know, a 90 minute to two hour game. And they're working on that. And that's and I haven't played it. So I'm rating it based on the rules I got to play with with my prototype. But I expect this the final version of this, this could be a game, I mean, not, probably not a game of the year contender, but a, a probably a strong candidate for top 20. Because again, I cannot stress enough just how much Jen and I love the collaboration element, loved the dice management, loved the components. Oh my gosh, it has such beautiful components. Loved the tiling element. We loved every single element, and all these elements come together so quick. And if we can get this game played in an hour, it'll be mwah, perfection. But even still, it's just right now simply excellent. My number nine of the month, Collab. Then we go on to number eight. Um, John Nan, Life of Gentry. Another paid Kickstarter preview for a uh, game that's on Kickstarter right now. And this is a bag-building worker placement game that does so many very, very cool things. First of all, in this game, players are Ming Dynasty-era uh, artisans. And we are trying to... The, the resource in this game that we gather, because this is a Euro game, is inspiration to complete great works of art, great works of drama, uh, great written works. And I mean, that's what we're doing. We're basically... Um, we, we're, we're trying to fulfill recipes to score points by making plays, art, and drama. And we do that through worker placement. But... Um, you know that's the that's the nuts and bolts of the game. But what makes it so clever and cool, aside from the wonderful thematic, atmospheric, um, you know, I mean, this game kind of reminds me almost of Fresco in the way it really brings all the personal facets of an artist's day to day life. We can go on trips and get inspiration from seeing the countryside. We can go down to the local market and get inspiration from just the sights and sounds. We can hang out with other artists and get inspiration from them because we need those inspiration to complete the works and score points. So that's all cool. Love the theme. My wife really loved the theme because she's a real-world-class artist. And so this really spoke to her. Felt like, I'm living my life in board game form, and I'm loving it. But what I got to rewind, because what makes it special is the bag-building worker placement. Because at the beginning of a round, you pull out of your bag a bunch of chips, these little hexagons, and they all have two symbols on them. One symbol says, if I activate this chip, that says where I can send my worker. Whether I go to the market, or I go on a vacation, or I hang out at the tea house and, and put my works on display for everybody to see, or whatever it might be whatever it might be. 
Um, so each one of these chips that are in a little queue uh, that I've got in front of me, I, I pick on my turn, I pick one of these, and that will let me do worker placement. So I'm limited in where I can go based on what I pull out of my bag. But the thing is, after I do that, the rightmost chip that's still in front of me, it slides off my board, is removed from the game, so I'm constantly bag-thinning in this bag-building game, and I get to do the other icon on that chip, which is a resource, a bonus. I get some um, some drama inspiration, or I get some money, or whatever it is. So every turn, you're going to activate two chips. One you choose, one is chosen for you, one gives you worker placement, one gives you passive income, and balancing those two things, and building your bag by putting cooler and cooler stuff in the bag, more powerful chips to replace the old ones that just get you know schluffed away, is brilliant. The action, this is one of the coolest new action selection systems I've seen in a long time. There's a lot of bag builders out there. Nobody's doing anything like this. And then on top of that, this is so wonderfully thematic. And I haven't even told you everything about the game. There's also this whole area control element that has to do with shaping the pop culture trends of the Ming Dynasty China. I, everything about this game is fantastic. The presentation is great. The gameplay is really top-notch stuff. Uh, I think it's still on Kickstarter now, probably ending pretty soon. Uh, check out my run-through to see more, because, like I said, both me and Jen were really taken by my number eight, uh, Jean Nan, Life of Gentry. Then we go on to number seven, Savannah Park, which is a uh, the latest game from the design team Super... Uh, duo of Kramer and Kiesling. And I'll be honest, at this point, i got to say, I think this is probably one of the best Kramer and Kiesling games I've played to date. Uh, and I, I, I've really loved almost all of them, but this one, which casts us in the role of park rangers trying to move all the animals of Savannah um, where we want them to ideally congregate with, you know, you know, members of their species so we can score points. We want to get watering holes next to all the giraffes so we can score a lot of giraffe points. But at the same time, we want to get watering holes next to all the elephants or all the uh, ostriches or whatever and score lots of points. So it's a it's a, it's not a tile laying game because as part of setup you randomly everybody has a board everybody has the exact same tiles and everybody randomly scatters them around on their board and at the beginning of the game you've got a few empty spaces and a whole bunch of scattered animals that you've got to get together and on your turn you will pick one tile you will move it from where it is to one of the empty spaces on your board and flip it to indicate it cannot be moved again it's locked in place and so as soon as I do that I say oh because I moved this double ostrich over here this is where I want all my ostriches ultimately to go and so the puzzle of trying to figure out how to make that happen comes into play, and you are juggling so much going on. Trying to get your um, your, rhino, your hippos with your uh, other hippos, your elephants with your other elements. And of course, the trick thing is, so many of these tiles have hippo or rhinos and ostriches. So you need to get this tile in the intersection between where you plan to put all your ostriches and your rhinos. And if you can do this well, um, and it happens to have watering holes, that watering hole can feed both species, and you can score super points! But here's the trick, folks. As I said, on my turn, I'm going to pick one tile, flip it over into its lock state, and put it someplace. And then my turn is over. But when I did that, and I said, I'm moving my elephant and two zebras tile, everybody else who has a completely different layout than me has to find their elephant double zebra tile, pick it up, and move it someplace. And I guarantee you, uh, more often than not, that is the last thing they wanted to do. It's like, no! Not that tile! I have plans for that tile, but I have to get this other thing out of the way first. You just made me move that tile now! This is basically a super bingo game where everybody's choices are drastically affecting everybody else, and it's brilliant. And I had such a great time filming it this month, because I actually did a three-way gameplay with me, Ruel Gaviola, and the two of us played against the internet. This is a great remote playable game, and um, so we all had a fantastic time 
time. The core gameplay, I spent more time than I needed to explaining how this game works. If you sit, if I sit you down, I can, in less than two minutes, teach you everything you need to know about how to play the game, and then we are off to the races. That's what happened when we taught the audience how to play, and they were making smart moves right from the get-go. But this game is deceptively simple, or looking. It is really deep. There's a lot of clever long-term playing that has to go into play, and um, you have to be ready to zig when you're wanting so badly to zag because your opponents will say, oh, now it's time to move the three antelope tile. Like, oh, not that one. Anyone but that one. Or, wait, I can put it over here, and then that means I can still make this work. You find yourself often saying in your head, I can make this work. I can still make this work. I can fix this. I can fix this. And it's fun from start to finish. Absolutely brilliant. One of the best we've ever gotten from Kramer and Kiesling. And that's really saying something. My never seven of the month, Savannah Park. Then we go on to number six, Get On Board. And now this is from Publisher Yellow, basically um, revamping a wonderful uh, roll and write that came out from uh, uh, Sashi and Sashi, a Japanese publisher a few years ago, called Let's Make a Bus Route. And this is still all about players trying to make the best bus route they can, picking up passengers, getting them where they need to go. Uh, it's not rolling, it's uh, flipping cards that indicates what type of bus routes you can lay out on the map every turn, and it is brilliant. This is the third time I've talked about this game. I thought it was brilliant when I played the original uh, Let's Make a Bus Route. I thought it was brilliant when I played the sequel Let's Make a Bus Route the Dice Game, and it it can replace the uh, cards with dice. And now I think it's the best it's ever been with Get On Board, because if there was one problem I had with the previous Get On a Bus Route, they did no real interesting player scaling for two. They've done that now. They've fixed the fundamental problem with the original for lower player counts like us. And Jen and I both agree it is fantastic. It is fun and compelling, incredibly fast, really engaging. And the interplay between players, because unlike most roll and rights or flipping rights, in this game, we're working on the same board. We're, I mean, our own board is just keeping track of stuff, but we're doing things on the main board. And if you make a bus route that gets in my way, well, I got to get through there before you do so that I'm in your way. Because if I ever have to put a bus route where you've already been, I suffer traffic penalties. And so the passive interaction between players is really interesting, engaging, a fun, fast playing, puzzly flip and write. Cannot recommend this one highly enough. Um, you know, I've liked every iteration, and this is the best one yet. My number six of the month. Get on board. Get on board with Get on Board, everybody. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Okay, folks, and let's talk about my number five, Old London Bridge, which is another paid Kickstarter preview. And this game, I feel like I've been saying this a lot lately, but this game really, really surprised me. I went in expecting a nice little lightweight, maybe gateway plus game, all about um, smart drafting of building tiles to be able to um, create a series of high-scoring buildings on Old London Bridge, which is all based on real history. Once upon a time, um, you know, the, the biggest bridge across the Thames was full of buildings. It was actually it's a district, a borough of its own that had its own local council. There was so much stuff built on that bridge, and that's what we're doing in this game. Um, on your turn, 
you are uh, sending your little worker out to this little dial at the center of the board, and this dial is always rotating, changing the relative value of the different buildings. So you want to get high-value buildings instead of low-value buildings. Sometimes there's certain types of buildings you can't grab. But the trick is, once you grab a building, it ta- it will go into the next slot on your, I have to say, very neat little three-dimensional Old London Bridge board that you've got. I mean, you, you could have just grabbed these buildings and just laid them on the table in front of you, but no, you actually build little buildings on a little bridge. It's very, very cool. Um, But anyway, the problem is, when you grab one of these buildings, they have a number on them. And the numbers that you are putting on the bridge have to go in descending order. Once I put a building with a 21, the next building has to be 20 or less. But what if there aren't any to grab? Or what if the only ones I could grab are buildings I don't want because they don't really combo with my overall strategy? Well, one thing you can always do is grab a park, which does nothing for you other than let you reset the countdown. So all of a sudden, um, you know, I put a 21. There's nothing else I like. The one I did like is gone because you grabbed it. Okay, I'll put a park. And now that lets me reset so I can put a 45 down as my next one after that. But again, every time you're resetting, you are slowing yourself down because that's one less powerful building you built on the bridge. Except, and this is what surprised me, I didn't appreciate the extra layer that goes on because every building, in addition to having whatever its function is, which is important, and in addition to having a constantly variable value, which is important, I want to grab ones that are worth three points instead of one point. In addition to all that, every building has a guild seal on it. And these are different colors. And what you want to do is, the more you have of, say, the blue guild seal, when you put a new building on, that has a blue guild seal, you will activate all of those guild seals. And that new building, if if you if it's like your fourth blue guild seal building, it will do a level four version of its actions rather than a level one. So you've got this whole set collection element on top of everything else, where you're trying to deal with these descending numbers, you're trying to deal with this draft, you're um, trying to deal with all these different powers you can do. And if all that weren't enough, there's the way we select, because everybody has a hand of cards. They're numbered one to four, zero to four. And before we do anything, everybody plays a card simultaneously with a value of zero to four. And the higher the value, the more likely you are to go first and get what you want. Often, though, you want nothing that's out there because they're all garbage. You're like, okay, I think I'm going to try and go last. So hopefully other people will clear out and maybe a good thing will show up. It is this game, again, it seemed so simple. It seemed like a little trifle of a euro. But both Jen and I, even though this is a game that we could finish in 20 minutes, boom, we were really impressed by just how deep the rabbit hole goes on this. Never mind the fact, it also comes with a whole bunch of very nicely realized alternate scoring objectives, so you can radically change the way the game feels. That, you know, in this game, um, you know, trying to work our way up the, uh, the, the, the gatekeeper track is really important. And in another game, nobody cares about it because that objective is gone, and it's been replaced with trying to do set collections, of trying to get the right types of cards in your hand. Normally, you don't care about what cards you have at the end of the game, but in this game, it's everything you're trying to do. It's really, really good. It's coming soon on Kickstarter in the month of February. I cannot stress, again, like I said right up front, just how incredibly surprised I was by my number five of the month, Old London Bridge. Then we go on to number four, Free Radicals. And I knew exactly what I was getting into when I checked this game out, and it delivers exactly what I wanted. This is a cyberpunk future game, although it's 
positive, happy, colorful, upbeat cyberpunk, which is so nice. What's the opposite of cyberpunk? Uh, Cyber-friendly, I guess, because it envisions a positive future for mankind, uh, where we still have all the cyberpunk tropes and, you know, and, and all the technology that just, you know, fundamentally changes the species and all that, but things are good. And um, here's the interesting thing. Um, in this world, each player is going to get a player board, as is often the case with many Euros, but whatever player board you get determines what game you're actually playing, because this is an extremely heavily asymmetrical game. I might be playing a Mandala game. You might be playing an engine building game. Or you might be playing a Tetris tile laying game. And I might be playing a deck building game. Because each of the different roles, whether you are an administrator, or a farmer, or an entertainer, or uh, you know a, a virtual reality champion, or whatever it might be, there's all these different games. And um, they all... You know, it, it could have been a recipe for disaster, quite frankly. Because you're like, ah! This is too much! This is 10 games worth of rules I have to learn! But the thing is, all of these 10 games are stripped down to their bare... I mean, the, the Moncala game. This is not a Trajan computer. The Moncala game is simple and clean and elegant, incredibly easy to teach and learn, and yet has a nice bit of depth. Same thing for the Domino game, which is what the being a farmer, and you're trying to lay crops, doing simple Domino rules. So all these 10 games um, you know, are, are very, very simple. But what's really interesting is, while you're doing an engine building game, and I'm doing a domino game, we are both still interacting with the central city. Because we're trying to harvest resources to be able to build buildings up there that become worker placement spots. If I go to my own building, I get the thing. If you go to my building, I get a huge payday. So I am heavily incentivized to build buildings that are good for you. Because then I'll start getting a nice steady stream. And you know the collaboration and overlap between players, that's just where it starts. Again, this is not a grim, dour future. This is a future where there are resources for everyone. And so everybody's just trying to be their best selves. And one of the best ways you can score points in this game is to share knowledge. Because everybody has, uh, you know, has this colorful knowledge track. And yeah, I can advance my own um, my, my entertainers thing on the knowledge track, so I know more about the world and, and we we have you know better standing in society. But and I, that's fine, I could do that. But I'm much more strongly incentivized to advance you or my other opponent, or my other opponent. And the nice thing is, even if you're playing this game as a two-player game, they did not. They did a great job, I should say, at ensuring that you don't feel like you're compromising. Because all five factions, this goes up to five players, are in the game every single time. So, um, you know, if I'm not advancing my own, I'll probably be advancing these AI uh, uh, actors, or who do nothing other than just basically score points if I funnel stuff to them. And you might think, oh, well, that's what I'm always going to do. I'll still do it to you, too, because I get even more bonuses if I can get all all of my opponents equally raised up in standing. So I love the message of this game. A positive, upbeat, happy vision of the future where people, even when there is competition for renown or whatnot, still, the best way you can compete is to help each other. And then on top of that, it comes with 10 really cool little games. Um, I have to admit, I still haven't played um, the Pick Up and Deliver one, uh, which is if you're a messenger, you can do a Pick Up and Deliver game. It looks nice, but Pick Up and Deliver is not my thing. But you know what? There's nine other little games that I adore. I think they're all great and absolutely blown away by my number four of the month, Free Radicals. Then we go on to number three, Boone Lake. Is there any surprise that the latest big box Alexander Fister game is going to get all the love in the world for me? Well, there shouldn't be if you know my channel, because Alexander Fister is my second favorite designer in the world, and Boone Lake does nothing but help cement that. It is a fantastic 
big, rich, meaty Euro game all about you know harvesting resources from the land, uh, making long-term investments to build up settlements, you know, all Euro-East type stuff. And in fact, actually, what I when I did my final thoughts for it, I said, what do you get when you mix Great Western Trail from Alexander Pfister and Terra Mystica? You get Boone Lake, and I stand by that. Um, because there's a lot of Terra Mystica and the way that you claim territory in the world, and the way that you um, as you take more and more stuff off your own player board, you get more and more passively powerful and stuff like that. All this stuff works very nicely. And honestly, none of it is what makes this game so special for me. What's really cool is the action selection mechanism, which is so simple. There's a little colorful board off to the side that has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven action strips in it. Each one of these action strips has like, when, when they get activated, there's like four or five things that are going to be done. So on my turn, I have to pick one of these action strips. I personally, on my turn, get to do everything on the left side of the strip, and everybody, myself included, gets to do everything on the right side of the strip. And after I do that, I take that strip, I put it down at the bottom, and then slide everything up, thereby making it a very suddenly unattractive strip to take. Because you want to get the strips that are at the top of this pile. Um, because if you take the ones at the bottom, you actually lose points, so you don't want to do that. You don't want to do something right after somebody else did it. But if you, the higher you up you are on the pile of action strips when you take one, you get another benefit. At the end of your turn, you are going to make progress moving your ship down the river. And that is the timer for the game. You want to move down this river as fast as you can. Because the early stages on the river don't get you much resources, the later ones give you a lot. Plus, they also um, dictate the overall tempo and pace of the game. So, you are heavily incentivized to take whatever's at the top of the strips. Unless, of course, it just terms that the, the, uh, the action you want to do is the one that's two up from the bottom. Will you do that? It means you won't move very far in the river, but maybe that's okay, because you only need one more coin, and that's all the farther you need to move on the river. Um, or, but... There's another thing, too. The game comes with a gigantic stack of cards, as is often the case in Fister games. You usually have a big old bunch of cards in your hand, and every time you do one of these strips, all the strips have one thing in common. They let you play cards from your hand or trash them to make money. Yes, folks, this is a multi-use card game as well, on top of everything else. And I love multi-use cards. Um, and the problem is... All these different strips, they are day, dusk, or um, darkness car strips. Um, and so, and you have cards that match. I might have nothing but daytime cards in my hand, which means whatever strip I take, I can only activate cards if I take a daytime strip. But the best card strip I could take, the one whose action, the one that let me move first on the river, is a dusk card, and I don't have any dusk cards. So do I wait, or do I forgo that? You are constantly having to make interesting choices and compromises in this game, and the heart of this game is so clean and elegant and simple, and yet it's so big and rich and deep. I absolutely love it, as did my wife, Jen. My only complaint, it's a little long. It, um, it, uh, I would love... I actually talk about this in my final thoughts, which I don't think have gone live yet. They'll be going live, I think, at the end of this week. Uh, I, I have a house rule variant that I think fixes this and puts it in like my top three... This is currently in my top 10 games of 2021. It could have been in my top three with this one little house rule variant that I will talk about when my when my run-through comes out, and you'll see it. And you can let me know if you think I'm crazy. I think it's so crazy, it just might work, and it might make this game just about perfection. As it is right now, it does not supplant my favorite Fisters, but it is up there, and it is fantastic, and it's my number three of the month, Boone Lake. And number two on the list this month... Astro Knights, which is another paid Kickstarter preview. And really, it should come as no surprise to anybody how much I love this game. Because this is a sci-fi... Think Buck Rogers meets 
Flash Gordon meets Guardians of the Galaxy style uh, reimagining of one of my favorite cooperative fantasy card games of all time, Aeon's End. I have covered so much Aeon's End over the years. I have everything for Aeon's End, and I love it to pieces. It's such a brilliant deck-building game where players are taking on incredibly clever, unique bosses with all kinds of cool special powers. But what's always made Aeon's End so great is the cooperation collaboration between players, because woven into the design are so many opportunities for players to help each other rather than just punch, punch, punch. The, the path to victory in this game is not just, how can I be better at punching, but how can I help you be better? Or at punch, 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 or whatever it might be. And all of that transmits over to Astronite wonderfully. Now, this is its own game. It's actually, if anything, kind of a more streamlined version of Aeon's End. The, uh, you know, the prep, instead of having to open rifts to be able to prep spells so that you can do various and sundry effects, here you just have slots. And um, all you gotta do is spend some power, and you can unlock slots. There's no, um, you know, uh, uh, rotating breaches and then opening them. And if they're in a closed state versus an open state, it's very straightforward. The way weapons, which is what spells used to be called, are handled. Um, you know, and so that's like a big, big change. Also, this game super fast to set up, really smooth and easy. Because regular Aeon's End has you do all kinds of really complex machinations to build um, uh, decks for the bosses that you're fighting against. But now, every boss just has a fixed deck of cards. And yet, there's still a ton of variety because of the way bosses, all bosses now, level up. In the same way players can level up by building stronger and stronger um, decks, the bosses all have this really cool universal leveling up system that makes them stronger and more scary and evolve in interesting ways every time you play them. And uh, so, the core cooperative card play is great. The, I like the sci-fi sci setting. I, I really enjoy it quite a bit. And then there's one other thing, too. Deck builders, ever since Dominion, have largely had two main ways they approach it. There's either the fixed collection of cards, like Dominion, where, okay, this game, these are all the cards I can buy. Or there is the river, where you've got a deck of cards, and over time, more cards come out, and you can never really be quite sure what's there. And sometimes there's good stuff, sometimes it's useless. Um, this game combines those two things into a completely new way that I have never seen any game do a deck-building market before, where there are fixed decks that you're drawing from, but each one of those decks is its own little mini-river that you manipulate. It's really cool. Uh, you can check out my run-through when it goes live. Uh, Jen and I had a blast playing it, and uh, yeah, no surprise, because it's my number two of the month, Astronites. But, folks, in a really great month with a lot of really fantastic games, uh, it's really saying something when I say that my number one is Endangered. And yeah, this game is amazing. I know I'm a little late to the party. It came out like two years ago, I think. And if I had played it at the time, there is no toys about it. It would have been my number one game of the year for what, 2020, I think, when it originally came out. In 2021, it came out, it got some really nice expansions. And so I got the game and I got the expansions. I've done a run through for it. And yeah. This is one of the greatest cooperative experiences our industry has ever produced for two reasons. One, the actual worker dice worker placement gameplay is Brilliant! It's so simple. I've got a set of dice on my deck, you know, numbered one to six, d6s. And um, if I want to go do a social media or um, or uh, if I, if I want to do environmental cleanup, because what we're trying to do is we are environmentalists trying to save various endangered species from extinction. We have to focus on keeping the environment clean. We have to focus on um, ensuring the animals stay out of danger and can get into breeding pairs. And while we're doing all that, those are the fires we're fighting. 
but we are also trying to make progress with ambassadors from the UN to get laws, international laws passed to permanently, because all we're doing is temporary holding patterns. We have to put in the time and you know the elbow grease and the shaking of hands and the influence gathering to be able to get laws passed to save these animals. And it's incredibly tense from start to finish. And um, it's all, like I said, driven by dice worker placement. If I have an action I want to do, if I want to clean up the environment, and uh, but it's your turn, and you want to do it, and you play your number three die, that could be a real problem for me, because I only have ones and twos. Once somebody puts a die on a worker placement spot, other players can do it too, but only if they have higher value dice. So we have to coordinate everything. Um, you know, it's like, no, 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 let me go first. Let me go first, because I can use this one over here, and that means you could still use your three, and we can do a double cleanup, and that will clear out all of that oil spill so that the, uh, oh, what is it, the otters, um, we, we, those particular otters who are about to breed won't die this round. That's how we've got to do this. And so the game is chock-a-block full of that kind of coordinated planning every round, because every round everybody rolls their dice and starts figuring out, oh, I got a bunch of low dice. I need to go quick. But I need you to do your action first to give me uh, access to this other action. But that means you're going with your high dice first. And how are we going to manipulate this? How are we going to fix this? Of course, like any good dice worker placement game, there's lots of dice uh, manipulation. But more than anything else, this game focuses more on player order uh, manipulation and trying to play with that. It is brilliant. The gameplay is fantastic. And like I said, that's one of two reasons this, I think, is one of the best games the industry has ever come up with. The other reason is the message it tells. This game is incredibly timely. It's incredibly harrowing. And, and if anything, while I love it, and I think it's one of the best games I've played in years, my wife can't play it because it is too heartbreaking. This game takes you on such an emotional roller coaster. When we were trying to save sea turtles, who were just trying to get to the beach so that they could spawn, and we realized, oh crap, um, based on the situation we're in, we have to, um, one of these pairs of breeding turtles, they're just trying to live their lives. We have to split one of these pairs up so that one of them will die, so that the other ones can live. And after two or three rounds of Jen having to make decisions like that, deciding who lives and who dies, um, you know, because the goods of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, she couldn't handle anymore. It made her simultaneously too incredibly sad and too incredibly angry. And, um, and it was hard. It was hard for me to play it too. But I think that's why this game is so important because it it makes us face this. And also, not for nothing, um, the game has been developed with a lot of feedback from a leading environmental charity. And proceeds from the sale of this game goes to that charity, which um, to date has saved over 700 endangered species. So if you pick up this game, not only are you saving endangered animals in the game, you're saving them in real life too. And it's got such an incredible, important, timely message. But it's also an incredibly fun game to play. Now, I, w I have to warn you. It is, like I said, harrowing in a way that really very few games are. And you know, for some people, it might be too hard to play. Um, it was for my wife. I would, I would play this Seven Ways of Sunday because it's just so much fun. And um, while it can take you on real depths of despair, if you can pull off a win... Uh, it can be satisfying in a way that few games are. And so I'll just stop right there and stop blubbering over my number one game of the month and really one of the best games in years, Endangered. Oh boy. Okay, folks, that is it. We are Dunsville with another roundup. Thanks 
Thanks for going the distance with me. Sorry, I kind of lost my composure there a little bit. But as always, hopefully, uh, well, I had a fun time. That was a lot of really great games. Maybe you saw a couple that are interesting to you. And um, if you'd like to know what's coming next, hit that eye in the top right corner of the screen. And you can go to my coming soon page where I tell you all about what we're currently planning. Plans change, but what we're currently planning on covering in the month of February. And otherwise, I just want to say thanks for everybody uh, for watching the show. Thanks to my wife for putting in the time to play these games, sometimes even if it's a, if it's a tough one. And also, uh, thanks as always to the sponsor of the show, Fun Again Games. Have a nice day, everybody. Talk to you later. So long. Uh, bye bye.